Live from the Land of Light in Nebula M78, home of the mighty Ultra Heroes, it's Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review. orphaned young woman surviving in the wintry Japanese Alps has an unlikely ally in the Phantom of the Snow Mountains, episode 30 of Ultraman. When an injured hunter is brought to the ski resort office, he relays his encounter with the snow girl and her protector, the abominable snowman Wu. Fearing the worst for the resort, the owner contacts the science patrol to investigate, and Hayata, Arashi, and Ide are sent to the scene. The snow girl, convinced that the SSSP has come to eradicate Wu, sets a trap that injures Hayata. But when Wu arrives, she's able to prevent the creature from attacking. The truce is quickly broken when the snow girl is blamed for the death of a villager. Pursued by angry townspeople, she cries out to Wu for help. And with the monster already enraged by a science patrol bombing run, the giant yeti clashes with Ultraman on the slopes of Snow Mountain. Our hero has faced many opponents before, but he has yet to battle a legend. The Phantom of the Snow Mountains is a somewhat unusual episode in the series for a variety of reasons. It's set entirely on location, with only a brief exterior shot of Science Patrol headquarters. For the first time, the team is only partially represented. Fuji, Hoshino, and Captain Muramatsu never appear on screen and the story, as presented, brings together folklore and the supernatural, offering no other explanation for Wu's existence. Ide's compassion for the snow girl and ambivalence about destroying Wu are balanced by Arashi's pragmatic sense of duty. Yet the tension is resolved without damaging the unity of the science patrol and is a thoughtful reflection on the use of force, especially on a children's show dedicated to blowing stuff up. The hunter who bullies the snow girl and takes aim at Wu is Ren Yamamoto. No stranger to the Ultra and Toho-verse, the expressive actor played a minor in Ultra Q Episode 1, was terrorized by Godzilla in the 1954 original, and survived an attack by Octopus and Gyra in War of the Gargantuas. For Monster Kid Radio's Beta Capsule Review, this is Mark Matsky reporting. Human is the fantastic motion picture record of the search for the mountain creature of Asia, whose name has become a symbol of terror and mystery. The abominable snowman. This is the claw that reaches out to kill. And this is the footprint in the snow, so astounding that scientific laboratories throughout the world are rocked by its startling impact. This is a mold taken from the footprint found outside the cabin door. By measuring the width, length, the depth of the print, their composite picture described the species as being nine feet tall and weighing around 1,800 pounds. What did Tanaka say? Well, he was convinced in his mind that the hair follicle was closer to that of man than to that of any other animal known to exist. Now you can follow the relentless pursuit of a half-human monster whose earth-rocking fury broke the torturing bonds of his civilized tormentor. 
half-human, he learned the terrifying power of fire over the natives who worshipped him. Half-human, he set off an avalanche of destruction against the invaders of his mountain kingdom. Half-human, he still felt the surging need for human love. of men on a perilous search for the man-beast of Tibet, the abominable snowman of the Himalayas. You've heard of him, haven't you? The world's most shocking monster. No one's ever lived who's seen him. Be on your guard. He's coming to this theater. The abominable snowman dares you. We dare you. Dare you to see the abominable snowman of the Himalayas? What did it look like? Tell me, what did you see, Kusang? Tell me! I see, I see what, what men must not see. Someone was watching us, trailing us. Passions explode violently as a man fights for survival and a woman's love against the never-ending terror of primitive isolation, astounding dangers that stagger the imagination, breathtaking thrills and spectacular action against the towering peaks 21,000 feet above the earth. Excitement thunders from the screen as powerful elements burst forth in all their fury to destroy the men who dared to invade the icy stronghold of the abominable snowman. I thought I'd open up this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio a little differently. Start with a super slick produced segment. We've got Mark Matsky killing it with the Beta Capsule Review with one of his favorite episodes of Ultraman, the subject of this week. So Mark, thanks again for making this episode of Monster Kid Radio sound so much better than anything I can do to it this week because once again, I'm using my gamer headset so the sound quality isn't the best. Welcome to a interesting, different, divergent kind of episode of the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not so classic genre cinema of yesteryear. I'm talking about Monster Kid Radio. My name is Derek M. Cook, the writer, host, producer, and haggard, haggard? Yeah. I don't know. Worn out, tired, still feeling overwhelmed, mover and unpacker. 
So uh, just to kind of give everybody an update as to what's going on here, I found my microphones. They've been unearthed in the various boxes. The cables to connect them to the computer have not been found. I know I've got these XLR cables around here somewhere. Once they turn up, then I can hook the microphone up. I am slowly making progress, though. I'm hoping, I'm hopeful that by this Saturday, I will have at least unearthed the cables and my webcams so that I can get involved in the Monster Kid Movie Club movie stream, which I'll talk about here in a little bit. I want to thank everybody for their patience and especially for their support while I'm going through this. I've been trying to keep a pretty positive face publicly on about that sentence structure was off, but I've been trying to keep myself looking pretty positive, and for the most part I am. But there have been some darker moments over the past week where I feel overwhelmed and alone. And I know that's ridiculous because so many of you have reached out to me. Some of you have even bought items off my housewarming slash divorce registry on Amazon for me. Some of you didn't include your name, though, so I don't know who sent me the doormats. Uh, I really appreciate it. Or these command hooks. Uh, or the Well, actually, no, I know who sent the cereal bowls. I'll send her a thank you. But yeah, some of you, I, I don't know who sent these. If it was you, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, I am producing a YouTube video. I finally started recording for it again. That's going to be tracking the entire move process. And I'm debating whether or not what I shot the other day is actually going to make the cut. Because I, I kind of lost it and I broke down. I haven't looked at the footage since. Uh, we'll see how that goes. But... Overall, things are still moving forward, and I'm hopeful that maybe sometime next week I can say, <sighs> I'm done. We'll see. Fingers and tentacles crossed. So, I don't have anything edited or prepared for this week's episode of Monster Kid Radio, which is why I wanted to start with Mark Matsky's segment with the Beta Capsule Review, because that just, you know, sets the tone for what's going to be a great episode because fellow podcaster Steve Turk reached out to me and said, Hey, Derek, I'm not going to try to do a Steve voice. Anyway, he reached out to me and said he would be willing to record something for the show to kind of do like a guest spot, which we've been talking about doing. I've got a number of podcasting friends, and if anybody ever wants to do a guest episode for me, it definitely helps me out. And, you know, maybe kind of helps spread the word about what you're up to as well. Steve is the man behind the Diecast Movie Review Podcast, and he reached out to friend of the show, Alistair Hughes. Alistair has been on the show before as well. Alistair is the artist and author behind the book Info Gothic. I'll make sure there are links to all of this in the show notes, of course. What did Steve and Alistair talk about? Well, Alistair's been on the show to talk about the Satanic Rites of Dracula, Dracula AD 1972. So he's going to keep it in the Hammer Dracula camp. They're going to talk about the movie Scars of Dracula, which, you know what? It works out for me. Uh, a number of different ways. This is a movie that I always wanted to talk about on the late lamented 1951 Downplace podcast with friend of the show, friend of the show's producer, Scott Morris. And I just never got around to it because, well, that show kind of pod faded. I know we keep threatening to bring it back. Who knows? Maybe next year. I don't know. Um, <laughs> um, 
So I didn't want to really talk about it or even visit it again critically until I had a chance to talk about it with Scott. So Steve and Alistair, man, you guys are helping me out and it's fantastic. It's a good recording. It's a good conversation. Alistair brings some really interesting points to bear about why Scars of Dracula may not have gotten... Uh, you know, uh, the, the praise that some of the other movies have gotten over the years. And it, it's interesting. It's fun conversation, of course. I had a blast listening to it, and I think you're going to enjoy it as well. Plus, they play around to the Classic Five. And I can listen to people play the Classic Five for days, which is something I didn't know. All the time with the Classic Five, I'm the one asking the questions. And yeah, maybe I'll answer and participate as well, but I'm always the, the guy asking the questions. To sit back and listen to two other people play the game. I finally get why you all enjoy listening to it, because I enjoyed listening to it too. So that's what you're going to hear in a moment. I'm going to play that here. And then after that conversation, I'm going to come back on to wrap up the show. So... To wrap up the show. So... Don't go anywhere. Here we go. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror film. It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos the Hands of Fate, and one of the creators of the original chill role-playing game. This book recreates the thrills of the classic monster versus monster film. We've got vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, scheming madmen, plenty of unexpected chills. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors in print or for Kindle at Amazon.com and other fine retailers. Coming soon in other ebook formats. Find out more at CushingHorrors.com or SDSullivan.com and support Steve's work through Patreon at PaySteve.com. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. Hi, my name's Veronica Carlson, and you are listening to Monster Kid Radio. I am Dracula, and I bid you welcome to the podcast devoted to the classic, and sometimes not so classic, genre cinema of yesteryear. And I offer you this warning. Sometimes Derek and his guests get excited, and they may spoil a movie or two. You know how excited Monster Kids can get sometimes. If Monster Kid Radio spoils a movie for you, do not come whining to me. I cannot stand whines. Hunt him! Attack him! This evil must be destroyed! down! Burn down his citadel of evil. You fools! You think you can destroy my master? The flames will never reach him!
is evil is the embodiment of all that is evil. Is the very devil himself. Dracula's reign of horror reaches out even further. Stop! A winged creature of terror becomes Dracula's most fearsome new ally. Enter Dracula's stronghold at your peril. There is one way into his innermost sanctum. Hey! Help me! Help me! You will tell me everything! Tell me! Oh, oh, he was here! It's true, he was here! Gone away! You must get away too. Now. One way in, and no way out. There is no escape from the all-embracing evil of the humans who do his bidding. From the creature that extends his power, there is no escape, not even for the protected, from the scars of Dracula. Take her with you. You'll do terrible things to her if you don't. Terrible things. Hello, everybody. Welcome to an episode of Monster Kid Radio. Yes, this is not the voice you're normally used to hearing. Derek is in the midst of his move and unpacking and getting himself situated at his new location, as everybody knows from listening to him in the prior episodes. And he asked me if I could help him out by guest hosting an episode for him. And I felt who better to help me with an episode than my close friend Alistair Hughes from New Zealand who's written the book on Hammer called InfoGothic, also does Little Shop of Horrors where he has artworks on the back cover, the front cover. Hopefully one day Alistair will be all over the place. How are you doing today, Alistair? Really well, thanks, Stephen. Um, I guess it's a sign of, of, of how how desperate Derek is that uh, he's actually, that I've ended up having to step into help. <laughs> I think it's desperate when he asked me and then, you know, I'm, I was, you know, I reached out to you because he wanted me to do a Hammer movie, and I don't know anybody else who knows more about Hammer movies in my personal group than you. I mean, literally, InfoGothic well, is a great book on Hammer. I, I really appreciate that, Stephen, and I, and I kind of see myself as as a as a tatty looking, um, overweight bat flapping through your window to talk about <laughs> Hammer because you only need to ask, and I'm there. <laughs> hopefully not puking blood all over the place but anyway <laughs> and, and and Derek just to let you know we saw your signal fires we knew you needed help just like when Lord of the Rings with Gondor and Alistair and I are answering the call we're going to be your bannermen we're coming to help you with this episode so hopefully it all goes well for us when, when, when you consider all that Derek does for Monster Kids and probably the world in general. It's the very least we can do, isn't it, Stephen? I think so. And it's just, you know, he, he gets there, he gets bogged down with all these different things, starting his new job, moving to a new location, a lot of new things going on. And it takes yeah, that time yeah. here to adjust and get everything situated to where you can start to get your um, regiment or schedule to where you're you know, acclimated to your new location. So hopefully this totally, will help him a little totally. bit. 
I, I am hope so. I hope so. Derek, we love you, man. Definitely we do. And um, Alistair, before we get started into the movie, what's been up with you? What have you been doing? What have I been doing? Um, I'm a freelance illustrator. Um, and what's basically happened is that um, work's gone a little bit crazy and I'm sort of uh, working various contracts and turning out children's books at, at the same time or uh, illustrating them at least, which is incredibly satisfying. But now that summer is starting to roll around, I'm determined that I'm sort of going to start turning work down so that I can actually get out and enjoy enjoy the lovely area that we live in in, in New Zealand. So I'm looking forward uh, to getting in a little bit more kayaking and cycling and tramping. Um, there's various hills and trails that I'm determined to do this summer. So when my next month comes around, I've, be, uh, I've promised, I've been made to promise that I'm going to be putting an X through more days than usual so that um, I can get out there and enjoy it. But I'm not really complaining, Stephen. I'm one of those very, very lucky people who his job is also what he loves doing more than anything else. So um, basically, I've been drawing pictures and getting paid for it. So who can really complain? Well, they, they would complain if I was drawing the pictures. Let's put it that way. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes they still do when I do it, too. Um, and how, how how have you been, Stephen? Well, I've been doing fine. Um, for those wondering, Alistair's summer is our fall because we're recording this on November 7th. So it's remember mm -hmm. he's on the other side of the world, so to speak. So he's well, I'm having these nice, brisk, cooler days. Alistair is getting ready to go out and go swimming and things like that. So it's it's kind of funny how it's <laughs> we have yeah. those differences. But no, I've been I've been enjoying myself. Um I went to Monster Bash recently and had a great time in wow, October yeah. Monster Bash and got to meet again Veronica Carlson, you know, one of the Hammer ladies. I mean, it's, it, it, she's so dignified and loving and caring mm -hmm. to all of her fans. And um, yeah. and Pam, 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 Pamela Pierce, um, who also was involved in Legend of Boggy Creek and all these other people that were there, mm -hmm. Victoria Vet, Vitri and those kind of things. So it's... It was wow. a wonderful time, and getting, and getting to talk to another fellow illustrator of yours, Mark Maddox, in great length. Wow, and, uh, Mark, yes. We had, we had some great nights talking to different people. Oh, it was fun. I'm really jealous, Stephen. I, I saw the photographs on Facebook. It looked as if you were having an amazing time. It is, and, and maybe one day, Alistair, we can always hope that you can come out to this, and then one day I'll also be able to go to New Zealand, and you can give me the tour I'll come in the fall, so it'll be that, that spring, and we can just go around and have some fun hiking. <laughs> that sounds amazing. That sounds amazing. Now, Alistair, there is something that Derek always does on his show, so people get more acquainted with the guest, <laughs> and that is the classic <laughs> five. And Oh, yeah. And finally, I purchased these cards from Derek a couple of monster bashes ago, and it's paying off, Derek. It's paying off. It's finally... I, I, <laughs> So let me give the cards a little shuffle. Nicely done. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, you, I guess you could say I learned my lot from my parents that's in poker. <laughs> <laughs> and for listeners wondering, I only picked from the hammer part 
of the Classic Five. I got the Hammer expansion. So all these are Hammer-related because we're going to be doing a Hammer movie later. And I got a Hammer expert. And, of course, as always, Derek says, there's no wrong answer in these questions. Because Okay. Alistair, question number one. Who never appeared mm-hmm. in a Hammer film, but you wish they had? Now, um, the usual... The usual answers given to this one, Stephen, are either um, Vincent Price or Barbara Steele, which are two that I absolutely stand by. My answer would have to be David Warner. Uh, He's still with us, and he's been in just about every genre film franchise that you can possibly mention. He's been a Klingon in Star Trek. He was the big bad in Tron. He was Jack the Ripper. He appeared in an Amicus film, but he never did Hammer. And um, I would love to have seen David Warner in a Hammer film. Yeah, David Warner. That's a great answer. That is a great answer. I I would love to see David Warner in there too, but alas... We'd have to send him back in a time machine to go back, unless Hammer produces another movie, <laughs> and he can be in it. Well, he he, he did tra- travel in time as Jack the Ripper, um, but yeah, that would have been amazing. So maybe I guess we can argue that he was maybe in one of the the, the, the Ripper films in the past, but we just didn't realize he was there in the background. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Yes, <laughs> this one I think fits right up your alley, being a, an artist. Question number two, what is your favorite Hammer film movie? I mean, I'm sorry, monster design. What is your favorite Hammer film monster design? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, the first one that springs to mind would have to be the incredible uh, makeup job that Roy Ashton did on Oliver Reed in Curse of the Werewolf. Um, I mean, Lon Chaney Jr.'s Wolfman is is iconic and untouchable. But what they did with Oliver Reed, who already had a very animalistic and, frankly, terrifying face, (laughs) um, they went in a completely different direction. They gave him the wolf ears. They gave him the silvery kind of look. And although... Lon Chaney Jr. will always be the Wolfman. I think, to me, Oliver Reed will always be the werewolf. Well, I like how you used the word in there. I was very clever. <laughs> I'm trying to be really careful here. <laughs> because, you know, as you know, they're, they're, everybody has their own camp with different um, groups. And I it's... totally do. I totally do. And please let, let, let me say at the outset that although I love Hammer, I love Universal as well. I mean, there's absolutely no reason why you can't love them both. Um, but yeah, I, I watched Curse of the Werewolf recently, and, and I have to say, um, even when he isn't being a werewolf, Oliver Reed is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> I've seen I've seen him in interviews, and sometimes you could just feel like it. Depending on what interview, how you catch him that particular day. Uh-huh. Uh, if oh, I was yeah. interviewing him, I could see where I would be terrified because it'd be like, which way is oh, it going yeah. to go? And you could say <laughs> one word, and suddenly he's there. His face changes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, unless I was doing it by Zoom, and then I would feel a lot safer. <laughs> <laughs> Slightly. <laughs> All right, question number three. 
If you could have <clears throat> been on set during the production of a particular Hammer film, which one would it be? Oh, wow. Um, I think I'd like to be on the set of Dracula, A.D. 1972. Ooh. I'd love to have been at that party scene because it was stone ground because it just looks like so much fun. And imagine being able to hang with Caroline Monroe and Janet Key. Um, but what I, the reason I, I would want to be there is because, first of all, because P Peter Cushing actually popped in during the filming of that scene. There are barely any photographs. In fact, I think there's only one photograph of him on that set, but, you know, Cushing popped in, so that's one reason. The other reason is that I would love to be able to sit the cast down and say, guys, I'm from the future, and I want to tell you that this film that you're making, for the next couple of decades, people are going to run it down mercilessly. So-called film critics are going to rubbish the fact that you're making it in modern times and they're not going to have a kind word to say about it. But don't lose heart. Hang in there. Because eventually people are going to realize what an incredible masterpiece you are making and opinion is going to turn, I promise you. People are going to appreciate this film for the, for the, for the sheer joyous um, adventure and, and look into the past that it really is. And they are going to start to sing its praises. So hang in there, guys. It's going to be rough at first, but you're going to get there. I think that's words for a lot of people in a lot of different films that were ahead of its time, you know, when um, people didn't realize Absolutely. how good they were until later on. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to confess, Stephen, I, I'm, I'm extremely biased. On, on probably every second day, AD 1972 is my favorite Hammer film. There are still plenty of people out there who disagree with me, but it seems, from my point of view anyway, that those people are becoming less and less. Well, how could people disagree with what is your favorite Hammer film on every second day? I mean, really, it's your list. I mean, what is it? Oh, no, Alistair, you're wrong. This should be your favorite. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I say. That's what I say. Yeah. I mean, whether you agree with him or not, that's your list. But still, you know, his list is his list. I mean, how can you say his list is wrong because it differs from your list? You know, it's, it's yeah, yeah. This is a tough question for you. This this Ooh. next one, I think I think it's tough. Who is your mm -hmm. favorite actress to appear in a Hammer film? Good luck. Oh, <laughs> oh. Is, that, is that actually a question, or are you just trying to give me a really hard time? Hmm. Okay, it's actually a question. Okay, I'm I'm going to stick. You can buy one. You can blame Derek. He wrote mm -hmm. these questions. <laughs> okay. Derek, this is your fault. Um, I'm going to stick up for someone who doesn't get enough love. Um, she's no longer with us. but um, And I've mentioned her before, actually. I love Janet Key from Dracula, AD 1972. Whenever that film is mentioned, people talk about Stephanie Beecham. They talk about Caroline Monroe. They talk about the rest of the cast. But to me... Janet Key um, really stands out in, in, in that film. Um, 
obviously she's with the gang at the beginning and she's at the uh, the, the, the ceremony that revives the Count. But she also has that really lovely scene with Cushing towards the end of the film where he's desperately trying to find his granddaughter and she pulls up in his mini, I think, which is so 70s London. And um, they have a dialogue scene, which I think really, really stands out. Um, She had a small part in The Vampire Lovers, but when I think Dracula 80, 1972, I tend to think Janet Key. And I'm saying this today, but ask me tomorrow or any other day and my answer will be different. So that's how I'm backing out of that one. Uh, and like I said, there's no no wrong answer with your list because it's your list or your pick or your Thank picks. You. Yep. Thank you. Now, this last question that we that drawn mm-hmm. from the thing is probably going to be so easy now, knowing what you said earlier. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unless it's not every second day. Depends. <laughs> uh, exactly. Exactly. Not counting the original. What is your favorite Hammer Dracula film? <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, okay. Obviously, I love them all, but I'm not going to get away with that. On on on, on my <laughs> all right, horror of Dracula has to be the answer. Um, I said not I counting the original, Dracula. not counting the original. Meaning, not, not counting the original, not counting. Okay. So you cannot yeah. count horror of Dracula. I'm not going to count uh, AD 1972 either because I've already talked about it enough. So uh, after that, I would say uh, Dracula has risen from the grave, starring starring your close personal friend, Veronica Carlson. Um, that film has a, has a real fairy tale element about it, which, which I really love. And I think part of it must be the that so many scenes are set on the rooftops of the uh, village. Um, they're, they're, they're obviously matte paintings, but they're, they're beautiful matte paintings, and they're done in an almost surreal style. And I think seeing the characters toing and froing on these fairy tale like rooftops, you've got the amazing castle looming out of the um, out, out of the landscape, um, and. Veronica Carlson's character is just such an innocent, but because it's Veronica, it's not in, it's not in a cliched or off-pat way. She's a character who you still invest in, despite the fact that she has this luminous innocence about her. So yes, today, Stephen, I'm going to say Dracula has risen from the grave. See, it shows you it's not the second every second day. It's the, it's the, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you, I like that you added, you added more love to the Dracula films, you know, that, that, um, we're going to be talking to it. And actually we're talking about today, a different Dracula movie. We sure are. Scars of Dracula. And I asked Alistair cause Derek said we could pick any hammer movie. And I contacted Alistair and said, what hammer movie do you want to do? And you pick scars of Dracula. It was my I first, did. I thought I had seen it before, but when watching it, I realized I have never seen this movie before. So it was the first time viewing for me. <laughs> but why did you pick, Alistair, Scars of Dracula? I picked this film, Stephen, because um, in certain circles, 
um, this film is reviled. Um, this film is strongly disliked. Um, I think mainly by hardcore Hammer film, uh, Hammer fans. Um, and I think it, it always makes a more interesting discussion when you're talking about a film that a lot of people don't like or a film which genuinely doesn't have a lot of merit. It gives you more to sink your teeth in, so to speak. Um, that was my reasoning. Um, and we've also found out in our conversation that you hadn't seen it before. Is that is that correct? That's right. I've never seen the movie before. So I, I came in with none of the baggage that I think you just mentioned where people don't like it or whatever. So I, yeah. And not having watched the other Hammer Dracula movies recently, you know, like meaning, meaning mm-hmm. years, I think I was able to give it the, the much more of a fresher take. You know, it's, it's almost like viewing it without sure. viewing it on its own, which I think all films, unless it's, a direct sequel, like like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which we referenced earlier, yeah. or Star Wars, where you expect that build up or interconnectivity. To me, a lot of films, even then, should be able to still stand on their own. So if you were to watch yeah. the Two Towers and Lord of the Rings, you should be able to enjoy that film with not having yeah. seen the prior film, if you had good writing, directing, and editing. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned continuity, Stephen, um, in re- re- relation to this film, because I guess one of the reasons, one of the reasons that some people don't like it is that it was the first Dracula film to break the continuity that um, the first five films had carefully woven together. Um, I think fans especially, we must have the continuity part of our brain overdeveloped. We we like things to knit together. We like things to connect. So when this film came along, which suddenly totally ignored the story that the previous five films had woven together, I think a lot of people struggled with that. And like I said, with that fresh take, it didn't bother me at all. And I think even if I had seen the five films prior leading into this one, yeah, I'm not a I'm not somebody that is beholden to con- continuity. It's hmm. except, like I said, if it's direct, if it's expected to be that way, like you know, when you're when you're taking from a book and moving it into a movie, or those kind of things, I'm I'm a, I'm a lot more lenient with with change in that area because you're trying to it's to make something different, and none of these movies are really beholden to Bram Stoker's book. So they've already exactly. been yeah. departed. Actually, in, in a weird sense, this one is probably closer in some ways to the the source material than the other ones were. I'd, I'd, I'd have to I'd have to agree with you. You know, having having um, in, in, infamously, uh, Christopher Lee didn't have a single line of dialogue in his second appearance, uh, Dracula: Prince of Darkness. Here, he's almost chatty. And um, he even smiles at at one point. I mean, it's a fairly grim, closed-lipped smile, but he actually smiles. He's acting as a host. He's been almost genial, um, which, as you say, brings things closer to the book itself. It's interesting. You say you haven't seen this film before. This was actually the very first Hammer uh, Dracula film that I ever saw. I mean, an interesting one to start with, and it wasn't my choice. I was staying up late in my pajamas, and it just happened to be the um, film that was on. Um, 
so yeah, I, I think it's really ironic that this film, which is so disliked by many people, was actually my first introduction to uh, Christopher Lee as Count Dracula. And I think, looking at Christopher Lee's point of view, being able to say dialogue, a lot mm. more of it, when you give an actor a chance to actually act and use his full repertoire, it's, yeah. it's, it, you can you get a better performance from that actor because I can just tell, like, if you're not giving any dialogue and this and that, it kind of, especially when you keep repeating the role, you want to be able to bring some nuance or something's different to Absolutely. it. Absolutely, yeah. And I think I think he really appreciated it. And then one of the great things I have with my particular copy of the movie, it had a commentary track with Christopher Lee and Roy Ward, Roy Ward Baker, the director, yes. talking yeah. about the movie and other things going on in, in the movies at that time and hammer and that kind of stuff. And it was really, for those that don't have that, if a copy of scars of Dracula, listen to the commentary track. It, it doesn't follow the movie constantly at all. It, it, it ties in every so often, but it's fascinating to hear the two of them talking about hammer in the background and the production side and different things going on. I thought that was rather fascinating for me. It is. It is. And, uh, the detractors of this film love to point out the fact that in the commentary, it's almost as if uh, Christopher Lee and Roy Wood Baker are trying not to talk about the film, <laughs> which is one way of looking at it, whether it's fair or or I'm not. But um, if 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 I can, Stephen, can I just give a, a little bit of background about how how this film was made and why it's so different? and possibly why um, it's not greatly liked. Um, Go for it. Thank you. Um, right, well, um, in, in my estimation, at least three things make Scars of Dracula special. Um, this was the first time that a Hammer Dracula film was made without American financial backing. Um so unlike the previous ones where you had Universal and then Warner Brothers providing money, this time Hammer got financing from um, a British organization, EMI, and it wasn't anywhere near the budget <clears throat> that they'd been able to enjoy previously. So one of the criticisms leveled at this film is that it looks cheap. It looks sh shoddy. Um, Dracula's castle was clearly painted backdrops. Now, I watched this film on DVD. It was reasonably high resolution. Um, there's a certain staginess, sure, about the battlement set, but in turn, and obviously the the uh, backdrop, the um, sky and the landscape is obviously uh, painting, but. That's not unusual for films at that time. But really, I had no problem with the sets. I actually thought they were surprisingly opulent. They may have been a little more cramped than previous films, but really I thought the detail was there, the colour was there, the composition. Really didn't have a problem with it. Okay, the sky had brush strokes in it, but hey, maybe it was raining. <laughs> Um, the other thing that makes this film special is that the X certificate in Britain 
had just been changed in 1970, I think either just before this film was made or, or while this film was being made. So the age was raised from the age of admission, was raised from 16 to 18. So suddenly Hammer were in a position where they could do an awful lot more in terms of um, sex and violence. This is something that I do agree with. I think the sex and violence in this film has been levered in. It's like someone realized, oh, we can we can do this. Quick, get it in. So in terms of the sex, um, the result is we get that curiously kind of British schoolboy, sniggery kind of attitude. Um, the previous Dracula films had, an, had a um, implicit eroticism which is part of the attraction of the character. It's part of the attraction of those films. There's nothing sexy about Frankenstein, I'm afraid, but Dracula always has that attraction, that allure. But here we have, let's see, we get a bare bottom in a scene with a Benny Hill regular. Uh, and we get a cheeky chappy in a tweed suit bouncing from bed to bed across the Transylvanian landscape. And it comes very, very close to being, I don't know, Carry On Dracula or Confessions of a Hammer Red Shirt because that's what Paul becomes. He's a, he's a red shirt. Um, and I think that's a little bit of a shame. The violence seems to be even more uh, levered in. Um, I'm still mystified by Dracula's murder of Titania. Uh, the vampiress who um, Paul sleeps with. I mean, first of all, she's a vampire. I don't think stabbing her in the stomach would actually finish her off, never mind why he's even doing that. And uh, infamously, there's a cut scene, which you probably know about Stephen, you know, as he's been, as the count is bending down over her corpse, apparently he sucked from the wounds in her abdomen, which is which is pretty gross, really, and not something that I think anyone wanted to see. But but the, the whole sequence is is senseless and pointless and pretty ugly, really. Uh, it, it, it it makes no sense. So yeah, those the, those are the reasons why. Oh, and sorry, <clears throat> the other reason is of course that um, as I mentioned before, Scars of Dracula seems to be a little bit of a reboot. It's a, it's a restart to a sequence of films which, as I mentioned, uh, were telling a, a, a consistent story. Um, the other film that was made at the same time, also without US backing, was Horror of Frankenstein, which is equally disliked by Hammer, Hammer fans. And this does exactly the same thing. It, it reboots a series which had a sort of loose continuity. The Frankenstein continuity is even looser. But it actually went as far as recasting the Baron. Um, as people know, Ralph Bates played Baron Frankenstein for his one and only time. Um, and pre-production, there's pre-production artwork around for Scars of Dracula, which seems to imply that Dracula may not have been Christopher Lee, or they weren't sure if it was if he was going to be played by Christopher. So there you've got these three things combined which sort of makes Scars um, an unusual film in the Hammer Dracula series. Uh, like it or loathe it. And unfortunately, um, a lot of people, in my experience anyway, seem to loathe it. 
I, I can see well, there are a lot of people that hate change. You, you see that with current yeah. films where they do soft reboots, hard reboots, or things that are different, and they get their ants in a pants about all these little details. You know, and, and, and having said that, I'm sure there are certain things that you and I would both be when we watch a movie that is changed, especially if it's something we grew up watching, like you did with this film. And that sometimes if they mm. change things, like if they were to redo this, you'd be like, oh, that's not the one I saw before. And I, and I can understand that. Yeah. But I always look at it when they do a reboot, whether it's soft or hard, it's not designed for the people that have been there before. It's designed to bring other people in. And then if they watch that, then especially nowadays with the home video market, they'll, they'll go seek out the older things. And uh, so when you've got to change and also if, if people are getting older, the actors are getting older and maybe they yeah. want more money, which is the way things work. And as they get more popular, they want more money and they want to do more bigger and grander things. Um, you you got to start looking at it. We, we need to bring the up and comers in and start getting them into the roles. And you can't always have everything. And also sometimes the actors yeah. get bored doing those particular roles and they just want to move exactly. on to a different yeah. character. And so that way they get their yeah. best performances. So there are, there, like I said, I'm, I'm not like beholden to continuity, but sometimes it does bother me somewhat a little bit, but I always try to remember this might not be rebooted for me. This is rebooted for to bring other people into yes. that grouping. Yeah. And that's the way I try to look at it. When I get, you know, my ants in the pants about it, I'm like, it's calm down. It's not about me. <laughs> <laughs> they weren't saying, how can we screw Steve? They weren't saying any of that. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, no, uh, just for the, for, for the circumstances that I've mentioned, and also the ever-present threat that they weren't going to get Christopher Lee. Um, Hammer had to pivot. They had to improvise. They had to they had to try new new things. If I can just put my info gothic cap on for a moment, in terms of that fan thing that we do sometimes, where we do try to make everything fit together, I came up with two two options for Scars of Dracula. One was that we somehow put it after the previous film, which was, um, and I'm blanking, uh, Taste the Blood of Dracula, uh, which ended with Dracula dying of uh, accidental church attendance in Victorian London and dying in London. So obviously, if we were to tie these two films t together, we might assume that somehow Clove got himself a fairy ticket traveled to England, collected his master's ashes and brought them back to Transylvania. So there we are. That's, uh, that's, a, that's an easy fix. But one other possible uh, solution which has been suggested for this film is that we actually put it before Horror of Dracula, which means that the events in this film actually take place before the Dracula story that we're all familiar with. That way, it doesn't have to tie into anything that happened after the original film. Um, and it's an earlier story. Um, when you look at the style of um, the costumes and the society that it seems to take place, and that could quite easily be events that happen before Horror of Dracula. Now, that's just, um, that's just a 
suggestion. Personally, I find it quite interesting. It um, could work, but it really doesn't make one iota of difference as to whether you enjoy this film or um, not. So speaking of enjoying this film, Stephen, come on, front up. Tell us what you thought of it. Oh, well, I enjoyed the film because, one, I love Christopher Lee. And I love Mm. his portrayal of Dracula. And for me, to hear him talk so much, was it threw me off because I'm used to him being more animalistic. Yeah, animalistic, you know, where he's just Mm -hmm. going after that stuff, you know, going after the victim and just being more of the bestial version of Dracula. And here he's more um, the aristocratic type of Dracula, Mm -hmm. but not taken to being totally verbose. Robos. Yeah. Yeah. With his, you know, with what's going on. So I thought that was kind of cool, you know, hearing him do these different things and, and pretty much doing certain lines that are similar to what we've all come to know from the, the universal and from reading the, the book, you know, of the original book from Bram Stoker. Mm-hmm. So it's, uh, sure. I, so I enjoyed that. I enjoyed, um, Dennis Waterman as Simon Carlson. You know, mm-hmm. I thought I thought he played an interesting hero, and uh, I also enjoyed Jenny Hanley as Sarah Frampson, who was the you know the the female lead, and yeah, I, I got along with. It. I enjoyed all I enjoyed all the acting. I I saw what they were going with Paul, um, Simon's brother, Christopher Matthews, as being the humor, and mm-hmm. and that and and how he I tell you he had a way with the ladies. <laughs> <laughs> According to this film, anyway, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, whatever it is, it seemed he seemed to have that that um, he seemed to be able to bet almost anybody he wanted. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And <laughs> I don't know. In any movie, you have Patrick Troughton in it. In any type of role, let alone as Clove, mm-hmm. you and I are both Doctor Who fans. Oh yeah, and I mean Patrick Troughton. It's it's just watching him work and getting to see him do everything, and how he brings extra um, portrayal. I'm, I'm trying to I'm lo- I'm a lost for words of how he does it, but he's able to bring that extra depth with the character because you can see him mm. fall in love with this picture of um, Sarah and how he wants to how basically he portrays Dracula in order to protect her and how he ends up helping yeah. Simon. And but also mm-hmm. he's doing things that are very nefarious to keep in Dracula's good graces, and he gets yes. brutalized by Dracula when he doesn't mm-hmm. do it, which is graphically shown in the movie. Uh, which nowadays would be it's not as bad as it would be now if it was shown nowadays, but it's it's he really he really suffers for his o- disobedience, and he, I follow he, a, I follow he, a really good portrayal. Does. It is, and, and in fact, I think probably Clove, I would say, for my money, is the, is the most interesting character in, 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 in the film. I mean, you, you've summed that up well, Stephen. He, he, does, he does have a lot to do, his, his shifting alliances, his trying to keep on side with his master, his love of Sarah, or at least her, her portrait. Patrick Trout, you know, Despite my personal favorites and preferences, if someone was to ask me who was the greatest actor to ever play the uh, the um, Doctor in Doctor Who, I would have to say Patrick Troughton. In terms of his his breadth 
of experience, um, his sheer ability as as an actor in the many, many roles that he played, many of them big Hollywood productions as well. Um, I think it would have to go to Troughton. And he really makes the most of this role. Um, He's revolting to look at, but you still have sympathy for him. You know, despite some of the cruel things that he does, um, you you know that he's a tortured soul and he's just trying to survive in an impossible situation. I am a little bit different with you, uh, Stephen, in that I have to say that I think Simon and Sarah were probably the weakest part of the film for, for, for me. Um, I think part of the reason why I have a problem with Simon is that, um, once again, coming from a British background, I immediately associate Dennis Waterman with the long-running TV series Minder, Mm. where he's a Cockney Cockney bodyguard, I suppose. His character couldn't be more different from Simon. He's big and he's burly and and he's not good with words and he's a Cockney geezer. Um, and that role sort of made um, made uh, Dennis Waterman famous. And in fact, he became even more famous because the theme song, which he uh, composed and sang, was actually a hit across the world, believe it or not. So, so my past associations with um, Dennis Waterman just make it very hard for me to accept him as this, I don't know, reasonably refined... A uh, very humorless sort of character that he that he plays here. I guess he's having to play it that way because he has to be a contrast to Paul, who, as you say, is the comic character. Um, Jenny Hanley is wonderful, and I think, like many many Hammer actresses, she's a little bit hamstrung by the fact that they felt they had to dub her. Um, as she says herself, she has a, a lower voice, which I think would have worked well for, for, for the character. Um, in terms of her performance, she does some wonderful eye acting, particularly in the final scenes where she's trying to escape the um, count, and he keeps appearing and looming out of the mist, you know, as Christopher Lee always does. Her, her, facial, her facial acting, it's an awful thing to, to say, but when... Jenny Hanley isn't speaking <laughs> because it's not her voice. Yep. She's giving her best performance, I, I, I think. It's, it's, it's a really, really good good role. And I was going to ask you that because when I was watching it, hmm. I thought her voice was dubbed because I was thinking – Yes, as I was like, it, 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 it was a, it, they did a very good – almost a perfect job, but it was enough for me to tell – Yeah. Nah, that, that, I don't think that's her voice, you know, and I, I, yeah. I knew you would know for yeah. sure. I, I, I didn't research it to find out because I knew I'd be talking to you about it, and I knew you would know um, and that kind it's, of stuff. So, so it, it, thanks for validating that because I, I, I felt that was not her voice. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's something that, that Hammer did a lot. They usually use the same voice artist, Nikki Fenderzel, who, who, is, who, is who is an amazing voice artist. I mean, she she's a great performer in her, her own right, but so is Jenny Hanley, and I and I just wish she'd been given the opportunity to to voice her own character. 
Um, one other actress that I want to call out is Anushka Hempel as Tanya. I was talking about how Paul sort of um, short-circuited the eroticism which most of these Dracula Hammer films have, but I think Tanya does her absolute best to to um, bring it back. It's a it's a it's an amazing performance uh, from Anushka Hempel, who is uh, blonde in just about every other performance that she ever gave. So seeing her with dark hair, it's, it's really striking. But once again, she has very remarkable eyes and, and acts very well with them. But the reason I want to call out Anushka Hempel is because, uh, and you may know this, she was born in New Zealand. So it always makes me very happy when I when I can find a Kiwi connection in a, in a Hammer film. <laughs> And I think we'd both be remiss if we didn't mention the two Michaels. Oh, indeed. Yeah. People would be yelling that. People are probably already yelling already. It's like you haven't mentioned Michael Ripper or Michael Gwen. I mean, you know, what what is wrong with you two? <laughs> All right. I'll 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 let you take take the lead for this one. Well, I'll 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 take Michael Gwen and I'll let you take Michael Ripper. Okay. Yeah, um, please, please do. Michael Gwen played the priest and Mm-hmm. Both of them had bigger parts, you know, than they normally would in a typical movie. They were small parts, but I think bigger small parts than typical. Yeah. And I liked Michael Gwynn's portrayal because he was playing the priest. So he was trying to talk the townspeople out of responding with violence because violence only begets mm-hmm. more violence, which he was proven correct, you know, when they, when, when the townspeople went up to attack Dracula in the prologue, the castle that yeah. is. And um, the repercussions that came for it were rather drastic and dramatic, you know, and, and definitely yeah. um, bad. But every time I see him, I always remember Jason and the Argonauts ah, and Hermes. Yeah. Oh, I just love Harryhausen. And anytime I can talk about a Harryhausen film, which we could have also with Patrick Troughton. But of it's, course we could, yeah. But when yeah. I think of Patrick Troughton, I always think of Doctor Who. But when I think of Michael Gwynn, mm. I always think of Jason and the Argonauts. <laughs> wow, I hadn't even thought of that connection. That's crazy because, of course, when I think of Michael Gwynn, I think of him as the creature in The Revenge of Frankenstein. And also he has a large role in Village of the Damned, which is another wonderful uh, British um, horror film. Um the thing about when you say the um, the um, two Michaels, I was almost tempted to say, "Oh, you mean Michael Palin?" Because I can't get past this, <laughs> and I know I'm not alone. Michael Gwynn looks so much like Michael Palin um, that it's uh, <laughs> it really is remarkable. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I, I totally forgot about Jason and the Argonauts. That's a, that's a great catch. Uh, Michael Ripper, a, a shame that De- that Derek isn't here because he's a huge fan of M- Michael Ripper, as anyone who's listened to 1951 Downplace knows. Um, and as Christopher Lee says on the um, on the um, commentary, it's not a real Hammer film unless it's got Michael Ripper in it. Um, wonderful, wonderful actor. One of those hugely talented and charismatic people who was doomed never to play a lead part. He was always a supporting cast member, always a a character actor. But um, 
the camera loves them. When 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 he's on screen, you you are drawn to him. Um, the character he plays in Scars of Dracula, once again, he's a pub landlord, which is always good to see. Um, not one of his more likable roles. His fear has actually turned him into into a rather blunt and brutal person. He's he's locked off his emotions. He doesn't allow himself to to care or help people who who desperately need it. But given what happened to most of the women, the women in the village, in the um, is it a pre-credit sequence or just after the credits? I'm trying to remember. I, I, I'm can't. It's the I look at it as the prologue because it shows. It's the prologue. It yeah. shows Dracula getting revived, and then it talked. Then you see the first victim in the movie being carried in, a la Frankenstein. You know, carried in yeah. by one of the townspeople, and that's right. And then Michael Ripper's character, the landlord. Is the one who's proactive. We are gonna we're gonna take this to him. It's a bit we know where the evil is. And he so he starts off yeah. as this very caring about the town people. Let's go do it. And he says you know, goodbye to his wife and and never and tells them all to go to the church to get everybody there at the church so all the women are safe. <laughs> go figure. With what we know in hindsight mm-hmm. will happen at the end of the prologue. And then of course yes. when they try to burn the castle down, which I can never understand because it's a stone castle. I'm thinking you're trying to burn down stone. Good luck. <laughs> well, it, 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 it seems to, to me, Stephen, that what they managed to do was burn a small model of the castle. I'm only kidding. I'm, 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 I'm only kidding. I, 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 don't, I don't like to say bad things about Hamilton. Well, um, <laughs> it was, I was thinking, and I, and I like how Clove was saying to him, you're not going to get the master. He's safe. And I'm thinking yes. he's underground, and we later we find out he's up in one of the towers, which only has an yes. entrance that's available if you come outside the castle to go in. Exactly. While you're, yeah. who knows, it looks like hundreds of feet up in the air, which mm. only Dracula mm. can really get to, or unless you, you know, um, be laid down from the upper, a window room above. Yes. And uh, that kind of thing. Which, so, which, which, which I thought was one of the more clever aspects of the film. Um, apparently, one of the one of the main motivations of making the film was, um, according to Anthony Hines, was to bring back some of the magical qualities of of the character. One thing about the Hammer Dracula films is that you don't have the bat iconography usually in the way that the Universal films used. And here we've got the bats, we've got the wolves at the very beginning, and we have the scene from the novel, which most people will tell you had never been filmed before, but apparently there was a Turkish version of Dracula which depicted this, where the Count actually scales a stone wall to fight, to um, enter a you know, a window, I think Bram Stoker describes him as scaling the wall like a lizard, which is a which is a wonderful piece of imagery. So it was great to see that in a Hammer film. I think it was one of the more, most expensive sequences in the entire film because, of course, they had to build the entire exterior wall set and then tilted it an angle that the um, that the actor could could climb. But I've got right off the subject with Michael Ripper. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll put you back onto it. The prologue broke him as a man. 
And then, which I think sets up the why he's just does not want to help anybody because he thinks it's all pointless. If we do it, we're just going to get um, attacked again and more people are going to get hurt. And that's why he wants nothing to do with helping anybody. Well, it's it's interesting. It breaks him as a man and it breaks the other Michael's character as a man as well. He actually says, the priest says, the devil has won. Um, which I think um, loops the end of the film really, really nicely, where um, shouldn't give it away, but let's just say that it is the most classic of Juice X machinas where the hand of God <laughs> literally intercedes. So you could say that the devil wins the first round, but the opposition <laughs> wins in in, in, in in the end. We are we are won't give it away uh, for people who haven't seen it, but you'll see exactly what we're talking about when you uh, when you enjoy Scars of Dracula yourselves. Oh I agree. And with Clove, as you said, he's such a pivotal character. Without Clove, this movie has a totally different ending because it, it yeah. needs his character so complex. He actually sets everything up to have a more positive yeah. outcome. And as you said, um, certain things happen after that to cause the end result. But there are two things. This movie's not perfect. There are two things that stand out in my mind <laughs> with this movie. And I'll, 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 the one I talked I, I talked to you about earlier, I'm going to hold for a second. The first one is, okay, sure. I thought it was great imagery to have Count Dracula in that the tower. The problem I had, a lot of times the casket is open and he has a window. Yes. Now, I've always been brought up, you know, sunlight being a very bad thing. <laughs> Maybe they built this. Maybe they built this facing north south. You know, not east west. <laughs> well, I, I I have an alternative theory. The makeup they've used on Christopher Lee makes him look paler than he has in any other Dracula film. In fact, he he looks distinctly seasick. Well, I was thinking maybe it's sunscreen, <laughs> and that's how. He can stand in an open window in clear daylight. But yes, I thought that was really unfortunate. They obviously had the one backdrop, the one painted backdrop, which appeared to be daylight. They could have solved that so easily just by having a nighttime version of that backdrop and using it appropriately. But I think there's one particular scene where he's standing at that window, it's daylight, and then it switches to another scene where it's a bright blue sky and bright sunlight. And yeah, for for those of us familiar with these things, as you say, that just seems, yeah, that seems a little bit jarring. Oh, I think so I, his, know exactly, his, I know exactly what you're talking about. He's like standing there, it's dark on the window. Then they, mm-hmm. they go to, um, was it Alice? The character Alice, the, 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 I think so. Yes, yes, yes. She yes. was on her way back to the castle or, or the goat. She was on wandering. She left the landlord at night. And then when they That's show right. it, of course, they're filming day for night, but they really did a bad job yep. of filming the day for night. Yes. And from what I understand from the commentary, uh, the producer, 
Ada Young, she filmed the day for night scene. That's right. Because he wanted to film it all night, and she's like, oh, no, it'll work. Ada, it didn't work. The director was right. It didn't work. <laughs> it it, um, it um, didn't work. Um, yeah, so thank goodness for Dra- Dracula's Factor 600 sunscreen, which clearly worked. But also, um, you know, it's funny, the day for night filming, this is this was a really bad example, but I'm actually doing a painting at at the moment of a of a of and strangely enough, it is about a uh, Hammer Dracula film, and I'm giving the sky a particularly blue tint, not because it's naturalistic, but because I want to give it the look of that day for night filming, which uh, which Hammer always used, which is so much a part of these films, really. And you, 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 you mentioning um, the barmaid uh, Alice. I think she was another good character. Mm-hmm. Um, some some people say one of the most likable characters. Really, she's she's the only one in a in a pub full of big burly men. She's the only one who really shows any real courage and compassion. Um, and I just like her delivery her dry kind of sense of humour. It's like she's obviously been plucked from the streets of London and made to work in Transylvania. <laughs> but she just her, 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 her very offhand kind of manner makes her a very likable character, I think. Well, yeah. she also was one, it was the only person that I know of that was able to um, hold off Paul, you know, with, with just words. I guess. And uh, yeah. how they were doing their tit for tat, and which was adding to the comic element because you knew what he was meaning, and you, and she knew what he was meaning. But then she was like, you know, and, and I just like the word play between the two of them. I yeah, thought, oh, this is nice. Good point. And it was so sad for what happens to her later on. I think because you get to care about her so much, but her calling out the people as mm-hmm. cowards, and she she tells yeah. the Burgermeister's yeah. police, "Oh, go to the castle. That's where he's at, and they don't. Well, yeah. That's out of our territory because they don't want to go there." And he's yeah. like, "Uh, yeah." Yeah, and and finally she gets tired of all the people, and that's why she leaves because she's like, "You guys aren't doing anything." But exactly. it leads to her demise. I'd, I'd I'd like to have seen her survive, but I guess uh, being a Hammer Dracula film, she might have been doomed. Just talking about the castle, Stephen. Just before you get to your second point, um, one thing that did drive me a little bit insane was that there are lots of scenes where people refer to the castle. And they look up, and that is just begging for a cutaway to a map painting of the castle, which I think just about every other Dracula Hammer film does. And they have beautiful map paintings. The castle isn't always the same castle, but you know, really, really beautiful. I just don't know. I don't understand why they couldn't have inserted um, one of those into this film. It, it cries out for it, as, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. But it's a small thing. Well, that's, that's an editing mistake, I guess, and or preference. Yeah. And you never know why they're going to do it. But when I was when I was bringing up the castle, I wasn't talking about him standing. I was talking about when he was laying in the casket. A lot of times, yeah. the casket was open, and he, yeah. yeah, he never burnt up. You know, and that's I think maybe I think I, the only solution I can think of was his facing north south, and so he was not in direct sunlight. But yeah. exactly, exactly. He, he he still wants his um, view, Stephen. He still wants his view. Well, that's true. What, you got you got to have the window of a view. I mean, you know, shutters, man, <laughs> shutters. Just put some shutters there. You keep you keep those 
those Carlson boys from coming in. <laughs> exactly. They're coming in and out of that window all the time. And, and I wonder if Simon and Paul, their last name being Carlson, is in reference to Veronica Carlson. You know, you wonder when they write these scripts. It's like a, they give. You really, yeah. You really do have, have to wonder. I mean, I think it's a contractual obligation that there has to be a character called Paul in a, in a hammer film. But yeah, the, 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 the name Carlson sort of rang a bell with, with me as well. Um, I wonder. Would be a nice tribute if it was if it was the case. If we don't know for sure, we'll just say it is. You know. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Agreed. Agreed. Now, I think I think the, to me the biggest flaw of the movie. Here we go. <laughs> some people say it's the elephant in the room. It's the bat in the belfry. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's Hammer has never been known for good bat effects. So the Anthony Hines decides. Let's feature the bat. And I mean, really feature the bat effects. It's, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's so I was, when I first was watching and I saw the bat, it's okay. You know, the bat's dropping the blood is bringing back Dracula. I think, okay, we're not going to see too much of the bat. And then I saw the bat flying out after the, in the prologue at the church thing. I think, okay, that's probably the end of the bats. Oh, I was so wrong. The bat was in it. <laughs> it, it, it is a pivotal character of the movie. I mean, they usually only feature one bat, thankfully, but sometimes there are, you see multiples mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and I love in the commentary that Christopher Lee points out about the bat at one point and it was talking about like, why would Tony Hines feature the bat knowing the bat? It's having the same, it's asking the same question I was thinking watching the movie. Yes. I love yes. the director's response. Let's just not go there. <laughs> We're not going to talk about the bat. <laughs> um, I, 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 I've got a quote from Christopher Lee here that I just want to read. He says, um, everything was over the top, especially the giant bat whose electrically motored wings flapped with slow deliberation as if it were doing morning exercises. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Um, can I say something in defense of the bad? If, if you can. <laughs> I'd like if to I hear can. this. Okay. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, as I said to you earlier, nobody does bats well. Nobody. I think an exception that I can think of is one of my favorite vampire films from the 1980s, Fright Night. Mm. Um, but the thing is, I think what possibly happened is that the bat was created by Roger Dickens, who actually went on to do the face hugger and the chest burster from Alien. I mean, this guy knew what he was doing. If you look at the bat in isolation, when it's not moving, when it's not doing its morning exercises, as uh, Christopher Lee said, I think it's actually a really nice piece of work. If you see a still of that bat, it looks like a reasonably scary, demonic-looking bat, particularly when the red eyes are, are, are glowing. And I think what might have happened is that someone saw the bat model in isolation, was impressed by it, and thought, oh, we've got to use this. This is great work. 
And I, I believe it is great work. Roger Dickon knows what he's doing. However, when it came to actually animating this wonderful model, that's when things fell apart. So, yeah, that's my feeble defense of the bat, Stephen. <laughs> I will give you the bat's head. Looks fine. And, and the, there's a couple scenes it's featured. The one in the beginning where he's reviving Dracula, which I've drew mm. spitting up blood, which, mm. eh, you know, it's, 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 it's mythical. It's fantasy. I go with it. You know, I've, I've never, I was like, I've never yeah. known it to be revived that way, but Hey, what the heck? And what the heck? Yeah. And when the priest, Michael Gwynn's character was getting attacked by the bat and you saw the bat on his face. Yeah. I thought that worked well. Also, sadly, they, they had a lot of flying scenes in there too. And, um, you and I both know sometimes less is more. <laughs> I totally agree. There's there's a scene, one of the scenes. Oh, I think it's when the when the villagers open the church doors and the bats swoop out. I think that works reasonably well because it's so fast, it's so quick. You don't really get a chance to focus on them, and you don't have the the flapping, the um, hovering, which seems to be the main problem with, with the young bats. So, yeah, if we were to focus on one thing which maybe doesn't work quite so well, it's not my least favorite part about the film, but, yeah, I have to concede about the bats. Yeah, I mean, especially for a modern audience watching it now, if I, if I was to have Ben watch it, I can just see him going, oh, it's... That, that bat effect is kind of weird, but you know, because you know, they're not, <laughs> and, and you and I watched so many doctor who episodes and older television, mm. um, dark shadows and things like that. So we're used to seeing effects where they do the best that their budget can. And yes. so, I'm, I, so it didn't take me out of the movie. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to be fair. It's not everything was to me was awesome. in the movie, there are things that could have been improved and, and the bat yes, effects is definitely one of them. I mean, you know, Hammer was never about the special effects. And there's a scene in Horror of Dracula where uh, Van Helsing says that um, the idea that vampires can transform into bats and wolves is a, fa is a fallacy. Now, that was um, setting out Hammer's stall in several ways, well, one of them being that their Dracula was going to be a very physical, very athletic character. But the other one was that Hammer knew what their strengths and weaknesses were, and they knew that they weren't going to be able to handle uh, a realistic bat, a realistic transformation into a bat or a wolf, so they quite sensibly stayed away from that. This particular film forgot about that, but as I said before, it was a deliberate move. They wanted to reintroduce some of that more fanciful, some of that more magical uh, aspects of the original story. But it was probably a misstep. And, and one thing I want to defend a little bit, you talked about the commentary track where a lot of people get upset with Christopher Lee and Roy Ward Baker, you know, because they're not, it seems like they're not talking about the movie, but they were actually, they, they were being moderated. I'm trying to remember who the moderator was, but he was like. Mar Marcus Hearn. Marcus Hearn. Marcus Hearn. So he yes. was questioning them and, and guiding them different ways. So it's, and not, a yes. lot of his questions were not about the movie, but about Hammer 
related type things or movie related type things, but not maybe about the scars of Dracula. So if you're answering exactly. questions and also Christopher Lee said quite a few times, this is his first time seeing the movie. And he, and he was like, mm, that's true. And he was recalling And as he's watching, he's like, he's like, oh, I don't remember that happened. I don't remember that. Like he remembered some things, mm. but I mean, at the mm. time he did the interview, I think this was 2000. It's been like 30 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. Both of these gentlemen were definitely elderly at the time. I mean, uh, yeah. so it, it's, it's like when I, when you've done interviews and I've done interviews with different people in the past that have done movie roles, it's hard for them. Cause that's just a few weeks or a few months of their life. And to remember exact details of all those different things. And a lot of actors do not like to watch their movies, you know? And yeah, so exactly. And, and then also if you, if, if you bear in mind, this was the fifth time that Christopher Lee had played Dracula for, for Hammer. Imagine how your memories would just merge and, and, and blend. I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Christopher Lee. I know a lot of people have said that he has a reputation as being aloof and a bit conceited. His friend Peter Cushing himself said that, believe it or not, that was shyness. That was how Christopher Lee, Co it's, it's impossible to imagine this six foot four imposing person being shy, but that was his defense. That was how he coped with it. And one thing that I enjoyed about the about the commentary was that he was so complimentary about his co-stars. He didn't literally didn't have a bad word to say about anyone. Which, um, unfortunately, if you search around, you'll find that that isn't reciprocated. Um, other actors in the film had had said that Lee was a little bit pompous and took the role too seriously and didn't allow any humour. Um, Jenny Hanley says it in an extremely nice way, but in an interview, she's talking about how in the final sequence where Dracula sends the bat to pluck the crucifix from around her neck, apparently the model bat, your, your favorite part of the film, came <laughs> flying in, bounced against her chest. <laughs> missed the crucifix and then kind of bounced off and was just sort of wobbling on, 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 on the strings. And she found this hysterically funny, which of course anyone would, but Christopher Lee was trying to hold the whole thing together, keep everyone in the moment and uh, refuse to find it funny. Um, personally, I think that says a lot for Christopher Lee. I would have been rolling on the floor laughing, but uh, yeah. There you go. Perhaps Scars of Dracula would have been a good Hammer film to be on the uh, set of. I think, well, I also like how the commentary talks about how he and Michael Ripper would be on the set together and, 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 and trying to, and he, they said Michael Ripper was so funny um, that mm. he was trying to keep himself, you know, they're trying to keep themselves contained, you know, from laughing. Yeah. Of course, they don't share a scene at all in this movie, but I mean, like, maybe he was like yeah, there watching the different things going on. So it might've been a different approach if he would have been in the scene, but you're also trying to stay in character. And maybe also Christopher Lee might know that once he starts going into the giggles, he might have trouble getting back in there. Cause you're supposed to be the menacing character. And, and there are people yeah. like, um, Christopher Reeve, a lot of there, there are people that said in Superman 
where they were upset where um, he would always stay in character, whether he was on or off camera, because he was trying to stay in that That's persona. Right. That's right. And I think some people were able to switch on a dime and go into and other people have to stay into that part. And everybody's style is different. And I think it for those that are able to exactly. switch off and on have trouble adjusting to those that want to stay in their persona. Yes. I mean, I, I guess that's something that people forget. We're, we're, we're so in love with behind the scenes a- 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 anecdotes that maybe some people forget that, <clears throat> first of all, the acting must be an incredibly difficult thing to do. And they are professionals who are being paid to be there to do a job and do it to the best of their ability. And I think that has to be the the, the foremost thing. Sure, have fun, but you're being paid to bring your best game. And if that's what you have to do, then fair enough. I think people forget that Christopher Reeve was a classically trained actor. Of course he took his, his craft extremely seriously, um, as did Christopher Lee. Um, I just want to say one thing about about Lee, and it's probably one reason why I love the Dracula films so much, the, the Hammer Dracula films. For every moment that Christopher Lee is on screen, I never once think that's an actor playing Dracula. To me, he is Dracula. He doesn't, he doesn't have to speak. Sometimes he doesn't even have to be facing the camera. But he embodies that character so perfectly. There's certain sequences in films where I'm watching him and I can't even see any humanity there. It's like he completely becomes this character which, which he has described himself as a human demon. I look into the, the eyes and his feral moments and I don't see a, an actor, I don't even see a human being there. To me, um, as much as I love Bela Lugosi and all the other wonderful actors who play Dracula, Christopher Lee is Dracula and, and in my eyes, always will be. I'm not going to argue with you because I, I, I agree with you. I think it's um, my favorite portrayal. The one that's the most iconic to the masses in the world is Bela Lugosi's because that's right. That everybody, because yeah. he, you know, he was the first one to have the worldwide recognition with it and his portrayal. So that one is the one when people think Dracula, they automatically are going to picture him. But I think I agree with you in that trying to get the, the presence, the demonicness, the, especially with this movie, as you said, the mysticism doors opening and shutting by his sheer will. Yeah. Yeah, um, that's right. And other things that were being shown with his supernatural abilities, I thought were just done so well. You know, he did, Dracula doesn't need to open or close doors. That's somebody else's yeah. job. <laughs> they just do it on their own. If you, if you, um, just, uh, I was just thinking, if you, if you look at the still, it's a fairly famous still of when Dracula is torturing Clove with the, with the sword that is heated by the fireplace. Patrick Troughton is, is in the foreground and he's screaming and he's giving it his absolute all. Like, you know, it's amazing. But if you just glance to the left, you've got Dracula in the background and he's slightly out of focus. But look at the expression on Lee's face. It is chilling. It, there's no humanity there. It's, it's terrifying. Um, but, but Bela Lugosi, I, I absolutely love him, and he is by a light year the best film about uh, the best thing about the Todd Browning film. Um, I think p- 
part of the reason, and this is no disrespect towards the actor, I think part of the reason why his Dracula is so iconic is that it's so imitatable as well. You've got the accent, you've got the gestures, you've got the costume, you've got the whole package there. Lee, by contrast, doesn't have a particularly outstanding costume. He's got the cape, of course. He doesn't have the accent. He doesn't have the gestures. What he does is completely different. You know, it couldn't be more different to Bela Lugosi's performance. But because Bela's is more of a performance, it's easier to imitate. It's easier for people to do and and consequently love. And I, and I believe that's a large reason why his Dracula is so loved across the world and continues to be. Oh, I agree with Lee's um, physicality. Not, you know, if, unless you have his physicality, you're not going to be able to imitate his Dracula. I mean, it's just yeah, because there's so much that, that that's literally him in that role. There's Agreed. one thing we haven't talked about that has been something that almost a lot, not almost all the hammer films, but a lot of hammer films have in common. And that is yes. great music. Oh yes. Yes, indeed. Cause this is Der- Derek's show. We always got to talk about the sound. <laughs> we do. We do. And, and I, I imagine he'd love to talk about this one because, um, yeah, I think as much as a lot of people don't like this film, a lot of people also agree that it's one of the best um, Hammer Dracula soundtracks. It's rich and it's opulent. And a lot of the earlier soundtracks go for a deliberately uh, discordant kind of feel. The um, horror of, of Dracula soundtrack is, is fantastic. I, I, I absolutely love it. This one... It seems to be uh, much more diverse. The, the gentle, quiet scenes are allowed, more sort of bu- bucolic music. There's wonderful sorts of themes woven throughout. I've taken over your point. Sorry, Stephen, you, you, you talk about the soundtrack. No, no, I was setting you up. So how, how, how rude of me. All I'm going to say is the only thing you haven't mentioned is James Bernard. Hmm. <laughs> You know, yeah. it, which which I know most, a lot of the listeners would know that, but one of the reasons Alistair hasn't spoiled the ending, and I'm not going to spoil the ending, is yes, this movie's been out since what 1970. Yeah, 1970. Yeah, and it's something I always try to tell my children is because they always want to say, "Oh, this movie's been out forever. Everybody's had a chance to see it." Well, here it is. You know, over 50 years later, I just saw it for the first time. So just because it's been out for yeah. a while doesn't mean everybody's seen it. Mm-hmm. And so you try not to, to spoil certain things about it. Um, we spoiled some things about it, but I mean, we didn't spoil, I think, the, the main crucial parts. And because uh, we had to, there's some things you have to in order to talk about the movie and, um, yeah. and that kind of thing. But it's just the score itself with James Bernard is just, uh, what can you say? It fits this movie because, as you said, it has the, it there's, there's quieter moments, there's, there's humorous moments, there's moments that, let things breathe. Now, some people get upset when things are let things are allowed to breathe because especially now in modern movies where things are edited mm-hmm. and cut to be so, you know, move, move, yeah. move. Yeah. And, um, I, I like it when you allow those character things to have a point, they'd let the actor act and not do rapid Agreed. editing at all the time to, to hide things. So I, I enjoy those parts. Well, 
but then you always have to draw that fine line where you don't want to go too far. And, mm. and everybody's point of view is going to be different. What's considered too far. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. And, and I'm pleased we're not talking about the ending of the film because in terms of, uh, in terms of climaxes, I believe this is one of, one of the best ones. It really is impressive. It's like they had saved, they'd saved their coins to, to 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 let the count go out in a really spectacular way, and I and I and I believe that they achieved that. It's uh, it's really worth seeing. But as I say, we're not going to talk about it. I'm. It's 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 my hope that um, that people can come come to this film without pre preconceptions. It, it is an interesting mix, Stephen. There's 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 different. There's a totally different tone right at the beginning of the film. Then there's wonderful traditional sequences in the middle, and then it becomes more of an adventure film towards the end. But um, for my own money, I I really really enjoyed it. I do too, and, and I'm going to agree with what Christopher Lee and Roy Ward Baker said in their commentary, in that they don't like their things being called horror films. They look mm. at them as action movies or adventure movies. Yeah, and I think yeah. For me, and, and possibly for you too, some of the best horror movies, if we were to like use that label, are the ones that are taking you, the viewer, through an adventure. And I think uh, yes. I, I don't. I don't really care about all the blood and the guts. I want. I want to have a fun ride where I'm in there watching what's going on and what's going to happen next. You know, and those kind of things. And I, I think I enjoy that where it's like it's so it's like an adventure with drama mixed together. I think that works best yeah. for me than something that's just being yeah. horror for horror's sake. And not that there's anything wrong yeah. with those type of films. I, and there's some of those I enjoy also, but I think the ones that, that mm-hmm. I have the most love for are the ones that have, you care about characters and you enjoy to ride. I mean, and you, with, yeah. with, when you have such great character actors in this playing pivotal roles, like we said with both the Michaels and with Patrick Trout and they, they, mm-hmm. they bring to yeah. life, that the supporting characters, which then allows the, 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 the lead characters, a great foundation to work from. Oh, agreed. 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 Um, yes. I mean, if, if I was to sum, sum, sum up this film, I'd say that, um, although, um, hammer fans themselves seem to like to dislike it in terms of someone who isn't, necessarily a hammer fan who wants to watch a dracula movie with all the things they expect to see in a dracula film i think they'd find this very very satisfying part of that reason being as you've said yourself it's freed from continuity you 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 don't need to know what happened in the previous film or who this character is it's a good solid dracula film and i think people will, will, will get an awful lot out of that I think so too. And and I, and that's why I enjoyed it. And I think if you're a hammer fan who's watched this film before and, and and maybe didn't care for it as much because as you brought up, put it into continuity, I would say if you Mm. hadn't seen it in a while, put it in without having watched the ones prior, see if it stands on its own and you don't have to know everything that happens prior. And I'll use Raiders of the Lost Ark as a classic example. Raiders of the Lost Ark picks up with Indy in the middle of an adventure 
Do we know what happened prior? We're alluded to it during the film, during the prologue, but we don't know what that mm-hmm. setup is, but we still enjoy it. Yeah. A lot of James Bond films pick up at the beginning before the credits open where it's at the end of one adventure. We don't know what happened yes. prior to that. It, 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 exactly. I, I think your mind fills in those blanks better than they're probably ever mm-hmm. going to do. And you developed your own personal mythos. And I think the same thing with this one, you know, Dracula's revived by the bat with the bullet. What happened to Dracula prior to that? I don't really know, but <laughs> I don't need to know. I just need I to know he came back. I, I think I think I can guess what happened to, Dra- to Dracula prior to that. It's what we've been talking about all, all along. He's got an open window. <laughs> he, 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 instead of going to the one in the north south tower, he went to one of the ta- he went to one of the turnstiles east west, and it was like, oh, <laughs> turned the dust, the bat brought him back, and he's like, that's it. I'm never using this tower again. <laughs> Mystery <laughs> That that explains everything. That <laughs> explains everything exactly. That's that's probably a good place to good place to start, isn't it? I think so too. And and Alistair, thank you for helping me help Derek out with uh, this episode. Uh, Stephen, I would do anything for 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 Derek. He's done. So much for us, and so, so so much for me, and so much for all of us. Um, it's it's the least that any of us can can do. And obviously, we and no doubt the listeners will be very much looking forward to getting uh, to getting Derek back as soon as possible. Once he's all settled in, found his microphones, got his geek on. Um, so yeah, looking forward to it. But thank you so much for inviting me onto this. I, I will talk about Hammer any time, but being able to talk about Hammer with you has just been an absolute delight. Um, send up a bat signal any time, even if it is a shonky, flapping Hammer bat, and I will be there. Thank you. Thank you, Alistair. I'll send out the, the rubbery bat with the flaps and... <laughs> To you all the way to, all the way to, and see if you can make it all the way to New Zealand in one trip, you know. Oh, I'm sure it can. <laughs> I'm sure it can. <laughs> as long as it doesn't get distracted. <laughs> but it's, <laughs> uh, but thank you. And, and listeners, thank you for um, listening to both of us talk about Scars of Dracula. And uh, I know you're used to hearing Derek's melodious voices, a voice, and you're hearing the two of us, but, you know, he'll be back soon enough doing the movies that we all love to enjoy those classic movies that are classics and because of fame or just classics because we all love them. Derek, get yourself, get everything set up and get yourself um, all your ducks in a row. We got your back, man. And thanks for letting us join in with this episode. You can find the diecast movie podcast over on anchor anchor.fm slash Steven with a V dash Turek. Go check him out. Go see what he's up to. Go listen to his latest episode where he interviews Lewis Gossett Jr. Yeah. Steve did an interview with Lewis Gossett Jr. and then slummed it here with me. So, you know, I'm, I'm touched and I'm honored. So go check that out and listen to him talk about, uh, well, whatever it is he's talking about with Lewis Gossett Jr. I haven't listened to the episode yet. I'm, I'm behind, but I'm looking forward to it. And then Info Gothic, again, that is the book that was put together by Alistair. You can find that over on 
Amazon. It's $25.99. I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes. Of course, if you use the link in the show notes, it helps us out because we're an Amazon affiliate. Alistair took a, uh, a really cool approach to creating this infographic guide to all things Hammer. And even Moon Zero Two gets touched on in there, which is another movie that he and I talked about here on the show, which, you know, just fun times. So go check that out as well. I don't know what's coming up next week on the show. I've got some recordings from Monster Bash that people have sent in that I need to listen to and see if we can use here on the podcast. So that might be what's coming up. Or we finally might get around to hearing us talk about Spider Baby with Chris Franklin. So just have to stay tuned for that as well. Of course, I'll probably, at least I'll try to mention it on the website at monsterkidradio.net, which is where you're going to find links to everything that we've talked about here on the show. Links to our Facebook page, our Facebook group, our Twitter, our Reddit, our Discord. Uh, what else do we have? I have an Instagram, but I haven't done much with it lately. Maybe I'll bring that back as well because, you know, I don't have enough free time. Uh, and... <laughs> Uh, our patreons over there as well as well as links to our twitch this saturday at the twitch channel monster kid movie club at twitch.tv slash monster kid radio it's an edgar ulmer day we're going to be playing movies like this one i just set up the break because i can use you this machine utilizes X-ray, ultraviolet, and alpha, beta, and omega rays. This man is a killer. Mad with dreams of fantastic power. We're conducting experiments requiring fissionable materials. That's atom bomb stuff. The government has that locked up tighter than Fort Knox. You'll work for us faithfully or you'll be turned over to the authorities. I understand there's a reward of $5,000 on your head. No money is safe. No man is safe. Nothing stops the amazing transparent man. Into army guarded secret government vaults he goes stealing confidential nuclear material, holding in his unseen hands the key to world power. But the amazing transparent man wants first vengeance. If I choke you hard enough, you'll bring me back. I'm going to be honest. This is probably my second favorite Edgar Ulmer film. My first favorite, The Black Cat, is not something I can play. But The Amazing Transparent Man, I certainly can. We're also going to be playing Bluebeard and a few other movies as well by him. Now, Edgar Ulmer didn't just do horror movies. You know, he did noir, mystery, thriller type movies. So we're going to have a mix of genres this Saturday. 11 a.m. Pacific at twitch.tv slash Radio is when the pre-show kicks off. And then the movies themselves start around noon Pacific. I work my day job until about 6 p.m. Pacific. And if I've got the webcam by then... Right around 6 o'clock or so, at least whatever movie's playing at that point when that movie's over, I'm going to come on live and we're going to hang out. It's going to be fun. I'm looking forward to it. I've missed chatting with everybody live. So that is something that we're hoping for. 
So, you know, if you got any free time and you want to come over and help me unpack, uh, that, that'd be awesome. Um, you know, just, just saying. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. And like I said, next week, I don't know what's coming up yet, but stay tuned because I'm sure it'll be something awesome because the people that participate in Monster Kid Radio, and that includes you, dear listener, make the show awesome. So thank you. Until next week, remember that Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under non-creative, no derivatives, non-creative, non-derivative, creative commons, non-derivative three. <laughs> I'm just going to leave that in because um, I'm feeling kind of mushy. Uh, my brain's a little, a little soft right now. So. Monster Kid Radio is registered under... (laughs) I did it again. (laughs) All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0, unported license. That's it. We nailed it. My name is Derek M. Cook. I'll talk to everybody next week. (laughs) Ciao. (laughs) 